coming to our last night together. Getting ready to go back into your real life. With hopefully the intention to integrate kind awareness, forgiveness, and gentleness, patience, and also the effort of connecting and sustaining attention, present time awareness, with all of our activities. Um, Hopefully it's clear to you that retreat uh, is just formal training for life. What we do here is in service of developing insights and developing wisdom. That of course we do apply here and now, but that we bring with us into our relationships. That we bring with us into the workplace. that the practice continues and and it changes. Of course, it's not. You're probably not going to be sitting and walking at work all day. You might be actually sitting and walking at work all day, but probably not with your eyes closed. Probably not silently. It's clear that what the Buddha... uh, was offering us was a path, a lifestyle, a, a full engagement with, with life. It's no accident that he, as part of the path to liberation, the Eightfold Path, that he spoke specifically about work and livelihood as part of your spiritual practice. <coughs> as part of your mindfulness practice, as part of the engagement with the world, choosing and engaging with livelihood in a skillful way, in a mindful way, in a compassionate way, in an intentional way. In the Eightfold Path, Uh, Also, of course, sexuality and speech, intoxicants, it's all there. How are we going to engage with our sexual desires, with our sexual relationships, with intimacy? Last night I spoke quite a bit about the cravings, and one of the notes that I got, I'm sorry I didn't reply to it, but I'm going to reply to it now. What about the craving for love? Not just the craving for sex, but the craving for love, for uh, intimacy. I don't know uh, what to say so much about it other than uh, sounds pretty like uh, normal and natural and human to crave intimacy and love. And uh, when we find love and loving relationships in a healthy way, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It can be part of our practice. When it's craving, when, you know, craving for me, craving says, Joanna was using the term uh, desire for the hindrance. And many people translate it like that, and they say, strong desire. I like to make, actually, a distinction between craving and desire. Craving, in my experience, is the feeling, I can't be happy until I get. I have to have it. I have to have love. I have to have intimacy. I can't be okay in myself as I am without another's uh, 
affection and attention, craving. I have to have it. I won't be happy. I won't be at ease until I get what I'm craving. Desire or wanting feels very different to me. It feels like I want and I'll be okay without. I don't have to have what I desire. It's not the same. It arises in in me, my experience when I relate to desire and to wanting. It's much lighter. It's much less intense. It's much less uh, convinced that it has to get. It's just a, a want. It's sort of optional. I want a loving relationship. I want intimacy. I want affection. And totally okay without it. I'm, I'm at ease without it, but I do want it. It's not the story that I can't be happy until I get it. I can be happy. Of course, we see this in those who choose the monastic path, who give up sex and intimately, you know, sort of on some level they give up loving relationships, although, of course, in the monastery, the nuns and the monks do form loving relationships with each other. There is a loving relationship that happens in community. I would think that most of them would say, yes, we love each other. It's probably a big uh, part and intention of having sangha, of having community, of having loving, supportive community, whether you're in an intimate relationship or not. To find people like-minded, people to practice with to give love to, to receive love from. It doesn't have to be in such a one-on-one intimate sexual relationship all of the time. There's lots of ways to give and receive loving connection. Wanting it is not a problem. If you think you have to have it to be happy, you're mistaken. It's just another confusion in our mind that says, I have to have it. Anytime your mind says you have to have anything other than maybe food and water, (laughs) you do have to have food to survive. (laughs) That's about it. I think that all I really want to say is really just a reminder. I feel like I've already said it in so many ways. Which is that uh, everything in your life is your practice. Everything. Not just meditation. (coughs) Or maybe we should just have a broader definition of meditation. There's talking meditation and there's listening meditation and there's driving meditation and there's sitting on the toilet meditation and there's showering meditation and there's brushing your teeth meditation. There's flossing meditation. Maybe if you're so lucky there's sex meditation with or without a partner. There's working meditation. There's dealing with money meditation. I define mindfulness as present time awareness. Present time, non-judgmental, investigative, kind awareness. 
It feels very clear to me that the uh, Buddha is encouraging us to bring present time, non-judgmental, kind, investigative awareness to every aspect of our being. Not just to the breath as we sit still in meditation. Not just to the footsteps as we walk. These are our formal trainings, of course. Wise speech. Wise livelihood. Wise actions. Wise effort. Understanding and intentions and getting concentrated enough to be present and clear about what's happening moment to moment. A full life, a holistic approach to spiritual practice. Like the dancing we did this afternoon. Include it all. Sitting still is not more spiritual than dancing. Dancing is not more spiritual than sitting still. It's all in the quality of attention that we bring to it. That having been said, I certainly have a strong uh, feeling and encouragement to the importance of a, a solitary sitting stillness practice, a non-moving practice. I think it is integral. I think it is necessary. I feel a little skeptical of people who say, oh yeah, I just uh, do mindfulness on the go all of the time (laughs) and don't have a sitting practice. I think it's necessary for us to also have a sitting practice. But it's so much bigger than the sitting practice. Have a kindness practice. Have a generosity practice. Have a forgiveness practice. Not just the resentments that you hold, but the people who are rude to you on the tube. Have a not being uh, so serious practice. Not taking ourselves so seriously, so personally. Have a laughing practice. And of course, there's a place for renunciation. When we take on the path, it's not only what we add to our life, add the meditation, add the kindness, add the service, add the generosity, add the. But it's also, you know, we have to be honest and say, what's not serving me? What do I need to subtract? What's time to let go of, to renounce? And the five precepts are our container on violence, honesty, being extra careful with our sexuality. And the traditional encouragement is to abstain from drugs and alcohol recreational use of them in our life. It's hard to be mindful when you're high. Even if you're just high on half a glass of wine, it blocks the ability to really be heedful and present. And That's why it feels so good, I think. It takes the edge off of your awareness. Kind of feels good to not be so aware sometimes. And you have to find your own way with that fifth precept. Don't take Buddhism as a moralistic rule, but as something to investigate. 
What's my relationship like to booze, to pot, to snorting ketamine? Can you snort ketamine? I don't know. Probably. That's all I have to say. It's nothing less than everything. All of it. And we can do it. And we can include it all. As long as we get our self on the cushion regularly, daily. Get ourselves on retreat regularly. All of the ways that support, have a community, a sangha. Find some teachers that you like, that you resonate with. Follow them around the world. (laughs) Whatever will support your awakening process. And I do actually want to leave it there and open to questions and um, discussion about your practice about your life When I've already said it's everything, it's sort of hard to ask, huh? You already know what I'm going to say. I gave away the plot. Please. No, what motivated you at the early stages to sit on the cushion every day, if you did it every day? The first, um, could you hear his question? He's asking about my own motivation in the early years. My first, um, I started meditating when I was in jail when I was a teenager. And um, I didn't meditate regularly. The first couple of years, um, I used meditation, I don't even know how often, like maybe once or twice a week. Like for stress reduction, like when I was getting, when I was freaking out or if I couldn't sleep or, you know, whether when I was, in, I was in jail and then I was in this youth home. And then even after that, when I had my own place, you know, I just had kind of untreated alcoholism and all of the stress and pain of my life. And I would use meditation occasionally as a sort of like um, way to get out of my crazy mind. I'd come back to the breath. A couple years into a really half-assed practice. But I also sensed that it was my only hope. I wasn't totally motivated enough. But I also, uh, actually that's not true. In the beginning I had this delusion. I I continued the delusion that um, I'll be happy when I get enough stuff. I was just a kid, but I continued this sort of like, I have to use this meditation and I have to stay off of the drugs. But when I get the right girlfriend... Right when I get the the love and the sex, when I get the um, you know I had simple desires, my record collection and my leather jacket and new pair of boots. When I get that stuff, then I'll be happy. And so I would meditate some, um, and within a couple of years, I had most of that stuff. I had the car and the motorcycle and the jacket and the girl and the stuff, and I realized that none of it worked. And of course I was young, so I didn't have that sort of adult delusion that I need the, like, big house. (laughs) It was sort of attainable stuff, like, you know, coming from the streets and having nothing. Like, all I wanted was, like, my record collection back. (laughs) That would complete me. (laughs) But getting uh, to that place and then seeing and getting continuing to suffer and suffering more and um, when I did my first meditation retreat 
19 years old, uh, there's something just really clicked. Uh, And 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 that sort of inner realization that um, nothing outside of of us works. There's no material solution for happiness. And having been an addict and in all of that trouble and stuff, maybe I had sort of exhausted the other possibilities in a fairly extreme way at a young age. And once I sat that retreat, there was something that clicked. And I think, I have to uh, be honest, that part of it is that um, addictive compulsive tendency that I have, that that many of us have. Um, And it turned towards meditation. I felt like this is my best bet. It's hard. It doesn't actually work that well. But uh, uh, I have the sense that it's going to work. I don't want to keep doing it until they put me in jail for it. Of course, eventually I started putting myself in jail <laughs> to teach meditation. And, but I think that there is some of that uh, in my own personal. Uh, if I find something that works even a little bit, I'm going to, like the rats Joanna was talking about the other night, pushing the button over and over and over. I felt like I did that with drugs and I did that with sex and I did that with stuff and I did that with extern- with the material world and it didn't work. And so when I found the meditation button, I just started, <laughs> I think I'll go on retreat. I think I'll sit every day. Maybe I'll be celibate for a couple of years. This seems like a path that is worthy of full engagement. But it took me a couple of years to get there. Not bad for a teenager. Yeah, not bad for... Yeah, really great that I got myself uh, into all that suffering so young so I could start the path so young. Really a blessing. I sometimes like to say I'm very grateful for crack cocaine really feel a lot of appreciation for heroin and cocaine and the way that it destroyed my life so young that forced me into the Dharma. Really. Or else I probably could have continued drinking for years and not started for quite a while, but those hard drugs just really kicked my ass. Please. I'll ask the same question to you. Yeah. And also, what was Celibacy like. Is celibacy for him or me? Without getting into the, a, a huge story, I, I practiced in many multiple different traditions for you know the past twenty years. Everything from Hinduism to the Red Road, you know, Native American traditions and um, yogic traditions and. Uh, landed in the Dharma in the late 90s. Um, And I would say the the first few were for the constant search for something outside myself, kind of like the stuff. You know, the first few were just sort of that existential question of why am I here, where do I belong, what am I supposed to be doing, and trying to find the answer outside. That not working, and gurus failing me, and (laughs) disappointing me, and... Um, yeah, ultimately just I, don't, I, I honestly can't tell you what turned me to Buddhism I don't really remember but I remember being disappointed with everything else and there was enough suffering in my life um, where I had to just stop it all and drop it and just I had a friend who said just sit he was, in, he was into Zen practice. Just sit. So I first started sitting not knowing what I was doing. And I did that for a few years until I found um, Spirit Rock, which is where I first met Noah and a few other teachers. Um, so it's not as... It wasn't as glamorous as an introduction, but it was still because of suffering. You know, but for me it was more the, like I said, the existential suffering of what's my purpose and 
there's got to be more, and I know it's not external. Really more that. And the celibacy, <laughs> again, I entered that through suffering. I spent actually the, the past two years celibate. Um, just I had had enough, enough heartache, enough pain, enough... I felt like I had caused more pain through my sexuality um, that caused me a lot of shame and guilt, and I felt like I was hurting people over and over and over again. Um, And it was keeping me out of relationship because I was so afraid of hurting people. I didn't even want to try to date anybody because I thought I was going to hurt them. And so I just decided to stop for a while and just take a break and take that off the plate for myself. Um, And it was actually a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it wasn't so hard. Um, I think mostly because I had already been on the dharmic path, and I, I um, my life just feels so full and complete and satisfying and exciting, and um, that I didn't need that to fill me in the same way. Um, I like sex a lot, you know, so it wasn't the kind of thing where like, oh, I could give it up because I don't really like it that much anyway. Um, that that was not it. Um, and I've now re-entered the world and I feel a lot more healthy and a lot more balanced through it. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think one of the biggest values of celibacy, it's not for everybody and it's not necessary for everybody, especially if you're in relationship, committed relationship, um, was that I found different places to put that energy that I hadn't allowed myself to before. There was a lot of energy that was being directed in that, in that place, you know, relationships and sex, relationships and sex. And um, I found that, that that passion and that des- desire and that movement uh, could be put to better use somewhere else in a more healthy way. So that's how it worked for me. I could answer it too, but I thought that was a good answer. As it turns out, sex is totally optional. Your mind and body don't know that yet. But it's true. Just because you crave or desire or want doesn't mean we need to satisfy those cravings or desires or wants. I think that uh, I experienced a lot of happiness when I was celibate. A lot of joy and a lot of effort for practice and for uh, intimacy and connection and non-sexual relationships. It's a beautiful practice. I totally encourage it. And if you're not choosing to be celibate, I think it's really important to acknowledge that you're choosing to engage in sex and sexual relationships. And you're also choosing any difficulties in your life that come along with that. That that's a choice rather than some sort of, uh, we're a victim or something. That you're, just, you're signing up for it. Take responsibility. You're all grown up. Your choice. Celibacy is a viable option. For sure. Daniel. Two questions. First of all, would you say you can satisfy your desire more freedom? Sexual desire? Yeah, any any desire. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Well, is it a desire or a craving? (laughs) Well, which is it? (laughs) Maybe you could even say, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, yes, you can even satisfy the cravings mindfully. We don't have to go to an extreme of, right, we're trying to have middle path. 
So it doesn't mean renouncing all sense pleasures, but it does mean having some, uh, you don't have to eat ice cream every night just because you want to. You can skip a couple of days. You can have some renunciation. And it's a good practice to say like, okay, there's ice cream in the fridge or whatever it is that you're wanting. And I'm going to choose not to have it tonight. I'm going to sit with that wanting. Just because it's there doesn't mean I have to indulge in it. You know, when it's something like that that's... uh... And then when there's the clearly unhealthy or unethical, um, you know, not within the precepts, desires or cravings that arise, then not an option. I really want to kill this mosquito, and I'm not going to do it. I really want to help myself to some, you know, steal something or take a little extra something that's not offered, and, but I'm not going to do it. So a place for renunciation and for not satisfying those unskillful uh, desires. And absolutely we can be mindful in our sexuality, in our relationship to sense pleasures. We have to be. Include it. Don't compartmentalize it. Include it. Practice with it. And maybe a a huge part, I think, of taking on the Dharma path and Buddhist path is humility to fail. To say, like, I'm trying to be mindful and I'm just lost in it. And I'm, you know, I've lost the plot again. And just having that humility to say, okay, I forgive myself and I continue forward. Um, We have to let go of this sort of perfectionist. I have to do it perfectly. um, But I'm really going to commit and then I'm going to recommit. It's some, one of the reasons why um, we like to take the precepts every day. <laughs> you know, regularly recommitting, regularly recommitting to the uh, taking refuge. Because of course you're going to, it's not like you just take them once and then that's it. And then you beat yourself up for failing. You commit and then you do your best and you fail and you recommit and you do your best and you fail and you Keep going. I love you. Keep going. You know. Keep going forward. Y'all Dharma out? Yeah, being a, a parent can give us some compassion for our parents. What a difficult task. And also can sometimes, I know in my own experience, can also make me feel a little resentful for how they were irresponsible. And um, Parenting is a huge practice. And it's sort of, I think, built into us to want to uh, protect and 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 with that protection comes some desire to control our children and it's hard to accept that we don't get to control our children that they have their own karma they have their own desire system they are sort of built in defiance different stages <laughs> um 
It's no accident that they called the Buddha's son Rahula, which translates as something, some form of attachment, some form of binding, actually, that we are bound to our children in some ways. My hope is that your practice will, and the kindness, Joanna saying, of course we have to be kind to ourselves and our imperfections and the ways that we get caught up and we're, look, you know, we're scared, we're, you know. And that I, um, I know that my meditation practice, my Dharma practice, helps me in my parenting, but certainly not perfect in it and getting stirred up in it and, Good thing is we don't have to be perfect parents or perfect partners or perfect people. (laughs) Um, But it's important, I think, you know, like the psychological view says good enough parenting. Don't have to be perfect, but uh, good enough. (laughs) And I'm certain that you're good enough. And if you could give yourself that same break good enough not perfect i get stirred up i get angry i get frustrated Um, but most of the time present most of the time enough of the time and be really kind to ourselves about the times when we're not and give ourselves the motivation to keep trying and keep correcting and Taking responsibility. It's a it's a big job. It's hard for me being um a parent and a traveling Dharma teacher, um and uh, you know, have, being the son of a traveling Dharma teacher and how uh you know some of my Childhood wounding and abandonment was dad was gone teaching, taking care of the yogis uh, quite a bit. And that's a piece of it. And uh, so seeing that uh, myself going down that path where I could also do that to my children and um, making some conscious efforts to rectify that and saying I don't, I don't want to play that out. And it's quite difficult because I uh, love being here with you. My mom started meditating. She's sort of like one of my groupies. She wants to come to all the retreats. Some of you have probably met her. She runs my website. She sends out the merchandise. If you order a Dharma Punks t-shirt, she'll like call you. I'm Noah's mom. She'll like text you, you know, start sending you emails. She'll be like, oh, you're, you know, you're going to see Aiden in, in London. I'm like, who's Aiden? She's somebody who ordered a t-shirt, but we're, we've been emailing. <laughs> Maybe Joanna wants to talk about it. I have just two pieces of practical advice. <laughs> Not that yours wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been parenting longer than you. Um, two pieces that I... I, I can't, I'm a really fucking good parent. <laughs> and I have an amazing relationship with my children. And very few issues... And um, I feel both lucky, you know, that that somehow, whatever. That's an aside. That's not the practical piece. Two of the things that I do that are really important is deep listening. Listening from a place that doesn't have an answer, that doesn't um, have a judgment, that doesn't have an outcome, that doesn't have a way I need it to be, a way of listening really to what they're saying to me. And that's not only in the words, 
It's in their body language. It's in their emotion. It's in the energy that they're... So we have to, when we're doing that, we really have to listen with our ears, with our head, with our heart. We have to listen with our whole bodies when they're talking to us or when they're not talking to us, when they're tantruming, when they're whatever. When my kid was two and he would be throwing these tantrums and I would find myself like pushing him away and needing him to stop. And the second I realized, oh no, what he actually needs is for me to hold him and for him to be close and for me to sort of just be with him for the tantrum, they, they kind of stopped. And so there's this way that I was kind of using my practice, my internal practice of what I don't like about my internal tantrum and how I want to shut it up and push it down and get rid of it and it's uncomfortable. I really learned through my child at the same time as my practice, oh no, what I actually need to do is hold it. This is that part we're talking about, about meeting that fear, meeting that sadness, meeting that. Not trying to give it a piece of candy or shut it up or turn it into what I'd rather it be. Not getting rid of what I think is ugly or unimportant, but turning into it and holding it. So that was one thing that really changed my relationship with my kids. And the other is is sort of the same. So it's the deep listening, and then it's also when we are listening... Not having, not having an expectation of who they are. Um, you know, my son is a teenager now. He's, in high, he's a junior in high school. And last year, I just wasn't liking the way he was doing his homework because he was on Facebook. He was listening to music. He was, you know, returning texts. He was doing all these things while he was doing his homework. And I was, I was having a problem with it. And he looked at me in the way that he does and all his wisdom. And he said, Mom, I'm not having a problem with it. I'm getting my homework done. I'm getting good grades. When I start having a problem with it, we'll have a new conversation. And this is what he says to me, right? (laughs) And, you know, the first thing I wanted to do would be like, no, I'm in charge. You need to do it the way I want you to do it. But I really sat, I I felt the fire. I felt myself getting all hot and wanting to be controlly. And I was like, you know what? He is right. He's right. Let him tell me what's going on for him. Not me being worried about, well, who's going to think what about me and he's not doing it the way that I would do it. And, you know, all these ways that we uh, think they reflect on us somehow, who we are. And it's like, oh, what a beautiful thing to let them be who they are and for us to really listen to what they need. And it's been, it's been amazing. It's been really fun. I don't need them to be any other way. And it's actually helped my, my practice. It's helped me accept myself in a different way. Because we all have those tantruming two-year-olds or those teenagers, rebellious teenagers inside of us at different times, you know? So it's like, oh, I just need to listen. So that's, that's how I've sort of gone about it. I'm pretty sure it's easier for the dad, too. I get to be the fun one. I was leaving, and I said, baby, I'll be back and to my daughter. She's five years old. And uh, I said, just you know, have fun with your mom. She said, I don't have any fun with my mom. <laughs> you're the fun one. It's not fun when you're gone. And I know that that's uh, the luxury of a two-parent and a... Uh, you know, household and me being able to be fun and my wife kind of cracking the whip more than I do. Anyways, uh, I'm still trying to learn myself about all of this parenting business, trying to figure it out as I go. Maybe last question, you had a question mark? Or, yeah, last question, I think. Uh, two, last two, I'll take yours and, and Mark's first. Uh, last couple questions, please. Essentially, like I can do personal development work or external work in the world, which I do and has some value, I think, helps people. And, you know, I'm filling up my calendar for next year and 
it, it's literally like a choice. And of course, the work is also personal development work, and it's, it's not black and white. But um, so, how do I make that choice? You know, I could spend six months you know, here, or I could spend six months in Afghanistan, forever. And um, the other one is like, how do you avoid becoming a big douchebag when you get success? <laughs> I've often reflected that in my own experience that I'm grateful that whatever success that I have and have had and hopefully will continue to have is in the uh, realm of Dharma and the Dharma always reminding me, reminding us, not to take it personal and that there will be praise and blame and that there will be uh, fame and and disrepute and... um, gain and loss, that all of this sort of comes with it. I'm always teaching that and always reminding myself that. And so I'm grateful that actually the Dharma that I'm teaching, that I'm getting whatever attention that I'm getting for teaching, is this constant reminder. I see my friends who've been successful in the art world or in the music world, rock star kind of success, and they don't have any of those reminders and everything is telling them to take it personal and that they are brilliant and Everything is telling me, don't take it personal. So I appreciate that. And maybe that's not the, for me, that's maybe not the same for you. Although uh, it doesn't stop me, my ego from getting inflated sometimes when you get a lot of attention. There's something about the self that just sort of inflates. But not, I'm not always successful, but with mindfulness, we can actually watch the inflation. We can watch, oh, look at this sense of self, puff, feeling, and relate to it. I'm not always successful at that. Sometimes I can go unconscious and, and get inflated or get uh, douche, <laughs> become a huge douchebag, <laughs> as you said. <laughs> but um, I'm so glad that I have the practice to come back to and uh, to relate to the ego rather than believing that it's who I am. It's not that I don't have an ego. It's not that any of us don't have that ego, unless maybe you're liberated and you're really not taking the self personally. I'm certainly not. But I'm so grateful that I have a relationship to it and that I'm watching it. And that I'm um, intentionally surrounding myself with colleagues that will call me on my shit. And they do. And having a community um, that you're accountable to rather than just being on your own so that there are some checks and balances. Um, I think that that's really, really important too when we start to have success, have some peers and have some people that we trust and some people that are farther ahead of us on the path and some of them that are coming up and that, you know, that, that we have sangha that's part of that. As far as choosing, you know, when you have a lot of choices, that's kind of a quality problem. And um, I found for myself that I like to have, like, kind of juggling several things. I have a, a private practice, a psychotherapy practice, and I see some clients at home, and I have some weekly classes, and I'm working in some rehabs, and I do some retreats. And I like to be doing, and I'm writing books, and I might be a workaholic. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not actually, I'm a bit lazy, truthfully, even though it sounds like I'm sort of doing a lot and have all of this ambition, I also um, have kind of plenty of free time. Because I don't like to do anything all of the time. I like to do some of this and some of this and some of this and work with different populations. And um, I love teaching retreats, but I wouldn't want to do it only. I also want to do individual relational counseling, and I also want to work with addicts just coming off of drugs. And um, I like doing a bunch of stuff. 
in the back. Um, you look and sound like none of the Buddhist teachers in And I get a sense of sort of repackaging the Dharma in the 21st century. Is that, could, we like to, could you expand on that a little bit? What was the first part that I look and sound like Noah the what? The Dharma teacher? The Buddhist teacher. The Buddhist teacher. Yeah. Experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, 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 think, I, I think I have to say yes, that it is, but um, I, di- I didn't put a lot of thought into it. It sort of just happened uh, organically. Um, I think that part of what happened for me, the, the sort of repackaging piece, is that my whole model of, um, I don't know, uh, my whole model is like touring band. That's the only model that I have is like my friends that went on tour and said like they made t-shirts and they went on tour. And so when I started traveling and like even before I was, uh, even before I'd written Dharma Punks, we had Dharma Punks merch. It's not like I started making t-shirts in order to um, like sell stuff when I was teaching. I just like... I like making stuff. When I was a kid, we used to make our own punk rock t-shirts. We would just draw them on with pens. And then when you get older, you start screen printing. And um, So I was like making the merch before I was even uh, kind of the books had come out or anything like that because it's just sort of what we would do. It's a kind of a gang mentality that I have. Like we all want to have our, our, our colors. <laughs> Uh, so as far as that packaging piece, that just was sort of not really volitional. I'm not going to try to repackage Buddhism. It's just sort of what I would probably be doing the same thing if I was uh, whatever I was doing. If I was on a bowling team. <laughs> I sort of think of the Sangha as a giant bowling team. And... Uh, you know, like, th- this is like our crew. And so, you know, you have to have your kind of, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, you're, you know, like, every, like kind of get your, your, your colors together. And then uh, it goes from the t-shirt to the tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> Against the stream across your back. Yeah, and th- that has been happening more and more. People get the... We did have a um, we had a fun, we had a fundraiser at our meditation center in L.A. a few weeks ago, and we had tattooers there doing against the stream tattoos and Dharma punks tattoos. Yeah, just one lifetime. <laughs> um, and, and I think the other piece about. I'm not really trying. I'm not trying to change Buddhism. I, I love. I'm a fairly traditional Theravadan, as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah. Some would say that I'm actually a little bit rigid in the Theravada, um, but I'm going to speak it in my own way and in my own parlance. And I really believe that the Buddha wanted us to make it our own and to speak it in the language of the people that we came into contact with, and to not stay in Pali. Uh, Although, you know, I'm happy to chant Pali, and I love the Theravadan monastics. And, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be real. And I don't think it's at all. And my teachers, Jack and, and, and the teachers, said, you know, we want you to have your own voice, not our voices. And I think that a lot of people that get trained as Dharma teachers don't hear that, and they think they have to mimic their teachers. And so there's a lot of sort of mimicking and cloning uh, there's that sort of thing where you see, I said this in an interview to Mark the other day, where you see psychologists growing the Freud beard. <laughs> and you see Dharma teachers donning the Jack Cornville Nehru vest. <laughs> you know, and kind of wearing the Indian 
you know, collarless shirt because that's what Christopher Titmus used to wear. And uh, kind of showing up in the style and fashion. And maybe I'm being too critical and maybe that's just their fashion too and they just happen to be of the same culture or whatever. But I feel, feel like there is some of that uh, cloning or, or um, kind of fitting in with what's expected. Uh, I'm obviously not willing to do that. And probably, uh, you know, we and our, our, you know, we'll probably create the same kind of monsters. Or people will have to think that they have to get tattooed or something, which is absolutely unnecessary. <laughs> or the t-shirts, absolutely unnecessary. Any of it. You don't have to swear. You don't, you know, I'll, uh, you know we'll probably create this tradition where... In 200 years, it'll be like, oh, if you're part of that tradition, you have to have sleeved tattoos. (laughs) And, you know, because people get so weird about, um, I want to be myself. I want you to be yourself. If you want a t-shirt, I'm glad. Wear it. Represent. If you want a tattoo, go for it. If it means that much to you. But that's not what the Dharma's about at all. The Dharma is about liberation and really about uh, genuine expression of healthy, kind uh, values. And that's what I'm trying to do in my own life and with my teachings. I think it's very important. Just the the discussions that we've we've had in the last couple of days have been a bit of a realization for me that there's this stuff going on which is very relevant to this technological society. Um, I'm a sort of generation sort of getting lost behind that. And, and I imagine you know, something has to change to, um, to be relevant. Thank you. Yeah. So prob- probably enough. Thank you. You are. This is Buddhist boot camp. <laughs> Fully ordained spiritual revolutionaries. Yes, that's exactly... I mean, this, it's an inner revolution. It's doing our own work from the inside. And when we do that, we will create a positive change in the world. For sure. And maybe we could get a little bit more organized around some actual service-oriented activities and... and um, Absolutely. So happy to leave it there. What I would like to just spend a moment on is um, asking you to um, start to reflect on uh, the practice of dana. Um, Joanna and I are here because we love the Dharma and because the Dharma has supported us so much in the changes that we want to make in our life, the freedom that we're seeking, our own practice. And coming to teach is our practice. It's part of our practice. And it's an offering it's a a gift to you. And hopefully, I, I really hope that it's a, a gift that go on, goes beyond your experience on this retreat, but that actually helps you make the changes in your life and develop the wisdom and the compassion and the generosity in your life that has the ripple effects out into your family, out into your workplace, out into your society, throughout this whole island that you live on, and beyond.
We can't put a price on that. We can't put a price on the Dharma. Although I do sometimes. I don't always. I'm not attached to the Donna model. Um, I think it's an interesting model. I think it's more for monastics than it is for lay teachers. But the lay teachers in the West for the last 40 years or so have been, we've been pretending like we're monks and nuns and asking for Donna and... Uh, You have the opportunity to um, be generous. And, you know, of course, generosity and Donna, it's so much bigger than money. It's time, it's energy, it's resources, it's attention. But in this, in this way, the Donna of supporting the Dharma teachers, supporting the Dharma flourishing, supporting the activities of the Dharma continuing, you have an opportunity um, in the, out by the message board, there's the boxes out there, to make a, an offering, a financial offering, an act of generosity. Both to support us as people, and uh, to show your appreciation and gratitude, and if you have some of that and you'd like to show it. Um, but you have to find your own way with it. I, I, one of the things I like about Donna is that it forces us to see our relationship to money. Decide for ourselves how much to give rather than just paying a fee. What feels appropriate. What feels generous. I think that the way that it works, uh, and very often in my communities where there's many people who don't have much to give, that those who, and this is I think across the board in Buddhism, that those who have more uh, give more to support the people and to help to support the community of people who maybe don't have so much extra who are maybe kind of just sustaining their livelihood as it is. And so that those who have more are encouraged to give more, to support the whole community and to support us. One of the ways that I like to think about it best is not that when I'm offering teacher, uh, teacher Donna, um, not that I'm sort of paying for service, because I think that Buddhism's too radical for that, that we're not in the capitalist pay-for-service not what you got on this retreat. But that actually we're here because people... Um, I was in Massachusetts teaching a retreat a couple weeks ago. And uh, they gave me uh, Donna that brought me here. They offered my teachings to you. I was able to come because they were generous with me. Because a couple of people wrote really big checks and supplemented everyone else that didn't have much to give. And that's why I'm here, and that's why I could come here and buy the plane tickets and, and all of that. And your offering will actually send me and Joanna home. <laughs> if you want to get rid of us, <laughs> it'll send us on to our next. Right? That it's paying forward, that you're actually offering those teachings to the next group rather than paying for the teachings you receive. Does that make sense? I just like to think about it that way better, that I'm helping the teachings continue rather than some sort of fee for service. Helping the teachers to support themselves and their families. It's an interesting thing. I was at the International Vipassana Teachers Meeting couple months ago and there was this whole topic about what are we going to what are the teachers who are living on Donna going to do about retirement there's no retirement fund for dharma teachers and there's a sort of subsistence you only have the money that you receive uh, from the work that you do from the teachings that you do within that month or year what are we going to do about there's no 401k there's no retirement fund for the Dharma teachers. And uh, it's start, you know, and, and a lot of that first wave of teachers is ready to retire. They're in their 70s. They're, you know, they need to stop teaching pretty soon. 
The good thing about it, being a Dharma teacher is you can basically teach until you fall over, I guess. <laughs> Anyways, any questions about the Donna? The baskets are out there. I think you can do check and cash and all. They'll maybe make some logistical announcements about it in the closing. But any specific questions about it for us before we end? Please. Um, Which is absolutely a part of it, and I believe that that, and I encourage you, uh, the coordinators also received on, and I believe that that announcement's given in the closing announcements, or I, I believe so. But as well as supporting the teachers, there's also a separate box for the staff, for the coordinators and the people that are supporting the retreat and cooking for us, and absolutely um, part of the process of give. They're also here and their generosity and their practice and also need to be supported. And I believe they'll talk about the specifics of that. Am I right that that happens in the closing? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, please. Okay.